Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do always on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT related topics where we answer your questions. So, we always do that, but also we have a second hour, and today it's, as always, a deeper dive into a topic, and we're going to be joined today by Richard Lavery, the Artistic Director of the Exconental Theatre in Belfast in the UK, also a good friend of ours for a long time, and he's going to be talking about designing small venues for digital and hybrid events. Richard's going to be joining us on the panel for the first hour as well, and it is time to kick that off. So, Mitch, what's our first question today? Bill, our first one is in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York, asking, Morning, guys. In production, what are the use cases to use lowercase for lower thirds versus uppercase? And Mitch, you want to start this out? Yeah, it depends on the size of the font you're using and the layout of the lower third. Uh, generally, if you got to go small for whatever reason, uh, uppercase uh, will uh, allow you to do that and still have it be readable. But um, if you have the, the uh, real estate, Caps and lowercase work together well. Courtney. This is less of a problem now that almost everybody is in HD. It was more of a problem whenever, you know, when we were at uh, standard definition, four by three, and uh, television sets only had only 480 lines to produce stuff. Uh, now that we have higher resolution and pretty much everybody has the same title safe area, uh, we can use uh, lowercase uh, because people can read it as easily and it works great on people that have those long three names that you have to fit in the lower case you know, if you have, if they have uppercase you'll never fit it in on a regular title safe area nice and uh john preto i just wanted to, to wish mike good morning because he's the only one that wishes us good morning in his questions there you go mike good morning from all of us chris fenwick i think in topography design it's important to remember that you know, letters letters have shapes, obviously, but words have shapes. And I, as somebody who is a, a, a slightly reading challenged, uh, I don't I, I don't read well. Um, the shape of the word helps in retention, and and when somebody puts something in full caps. It doesn't read as easily. It might feel bold. It might look cool, but it doesn't read as well. And so you really want to think about that if you're worried about legibility. Also, with reading things quickly, um, something that's all caps, it's, it's, it's much harder to read and retain something quickly. And Mitch Hill. Yeah, I'd like to add on to the, uh, uh, the general uh, comments that came in. Sans serif uh, is much more readable on a lower third. When you start adding serif fonts, it gets a little funky because of all the ligatures and things that uh, start bumping into each other. Yeah, and the, for the type people that I know, and there are a lot of type designers who work in video specifically, contrast is always an interesting issue when you're designing stuff for uh, going superimposing over video. Uh, you never know whether your background is going to be dark or light or moving from dark to light. So uh, there's a lot of techniques, uh, shaded boxes, drop shadows, um, fuzzy edges uh, in color to con to provide that contrast if that contrast isn't natural. So um, I... I no matter what type you're using, uh, the readability is your ultimate goal. And so all these techniques plus um, lower and upper, I was always taught that in print work at least, upper and lower is 
traditionally easier for the eye to read than all upper, but we've seen circumstances where if you're in headline sizes and things like that, it makes uh, a more bold presentation to go all caps. So that's a possibility. Mitch, what do you think? Yeah, sorry to keep going on this. Uh, uh, readability, lots of things you can do. Uh, generally, people uh, put, apply some kind of a slab uh, that the text is written um, that is uh, appears over as a layer. And if you're not using that, it must be just text over the video. Um, sometimes I apply a black glow to the white letters uh, that allows it to pop off of anything. You don't there see you it over something sense. dark, yeah. but it works great on light stuff. Yeah. Uh, so those are just some of the things that, oh, Mike, we took care of your question. Let's move on to the next one. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, what do the pros use for telestrating like on network sports and NFL, NBA, and NCAA games? Uh, Courtney Gooden's going to help us out here. Courtney? Well, I did some research on this, and apparently they're using something from Fingerworks, who makes telestrators, and they claim that they uh, are, are now uh, sponsored, uh, or rather now have, uh, this is their product list. Oops. <laughs> well, anyway. CBS Sports, NBC, ESPN, Fox Sports, they all claim to be using these Fingerworks telestrators, which make them for pro broadcasters. Interesting. Well, you know, if you get the hardware in there and you've got your your play-by-play -play people are using the telestrator constantly and they have a good product, that would make sense to get it all from one vendor. Mitch Hill, your thoughts? Well, in the historical uh, interest, uh, the Chiron used to have a telestrating add-on to it. So yeah, that the Chiron's yeah, name in hardware forever. Those of us who were in the early parts of broadcast sports, that name, well, any kind of text over things. Guy Cochran? I had to phone a friend on this uh, one. So our friend Bo uh, shot uh, him a quick Discord. Excellent resource. Yeah, there wasn't uh, anybody raising their hand at first. So yeah, Chiron, as uh, Mitch said, is one that he said. Uh, SMT is the other one. And Ross Video. What do you know, Ross? Good old There Ross. you go. So I knew there was somebody who would be able to reach out when I saw this and nobody raised their hand. I went, uh-oh. Uh, but we've come through again. Thank you, everyone. Let's head off to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asks, how many 720p NDI feeds are safe to run on an M1 Mac Mini, 16 gigabytes of RAM? Thanks. Guy, do you have some numbers for us? Yeah, so 720 is running at 2 to 4 megabits per, uh, or, two, yeah, 2 to 4 megabits. So if you take 100, which is the theoretical uh, max bandwidth you can pull out of a, a Zoom high bandwidth mode, uh, which is what Zoom uh ISO is doing, you would get 25 feeds. So 25 max, whether or not that soaks your CPU. So uh, Liminal on their Liminal LT uh, site has a uh, set of specs for the 1080s and there's eight listed on there, but the, the CPUs of all the way up to 64. So if you go and look at your CPU, you can download the um, free trial of Zoom ISO and give it a roll yourself to, to ensure. But I can't see a show with 25 folks, but maybe I'm not doing those kinds of shows, but that's a lot of people to pull in. That's a, that's a heck of a show. I mean, you'd be needing a, yeah, you'd be needing some help on that one. Absolutely. Uh, next question. Scott Muller from Germantown, New York asks, has anyone thought of creating courses for Isadora, Companion, Blackmagic, Zoom OSC for sites like Mac Pro Video, LinkedIn Learning, or Udemy? Is there a demand for self-paced courses on these topics? Richard Lavery. Yeah, we have looked at a couple of these for 
for both ourselves, um, we, we introduced a kind of training program uh, last year, and because of all the knowledge that we've built up over from office hours and uh, other productions, we thought that you know starting to create uh, training videos would be a fantastic idea. Um, we haven't looked at them for LinkedIn Learning uh, and for for other places because what we tend to do is use it in house. Um, we want to provide it bespoke to 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 a specific uh, membership audience, um, but it's a very very good idea. And, but having said that, After Hours has a lot of, uh, lot of material there as well. Uh, Alexander. Well, I haven't checked these platforms for these specific topics, but I would say absolutely there is a demand, at least for me, because I would absolutely watch those courses. Uh, if you have the means to do it, I don't know what the, um, uh, what the requirements are to get on those platforms, but if, if you can do it, you should do it, because I would watch it. And as everybody knows, you know, the things like YouTube and, and similar sites have become one of the biggest resources for people looking to learn anything. The only downside of it, and the reason that I kind of support some of the more professional training organizations, is that I've spent five or six clicks trying to go to something I thought I was going to get an answer from, and you watch it, and by the time they finish telling you to hit the button, subscribe, and all the rest of that, you're two minutes into it, and you haven't learned anything. With the more professional kind of created courses that you find on LinkedIn Learning and Udemy and other sources like that, they tend to get that stuff out of the way and get more to the meat of the courses first. So I usually find it worth spending a little bit to support good training and good trainers as opposed to just wandering around the nets and trying to find information that way. Your mileage may vary. Next question. TJ Asher, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've got a ton of old camera photography gear that is in perfect condition that I never use. I still have the original boxes. I really don't know want to throw perfectly working gear away. Any suggestions on how to give it away to people who can use it? Let's start with Richard Lavery here. Um, you give it to me. I think uh, it would be my first suggestion. Um, I will happily take it. Or companies like ours. So we're a theatre and a charity, and we are always using you know theatres as well as uh, kind of performance groups are always looking for interesting pieces of set. Uh, I know I've destroyed several of my own couches by, by carrying them up roads to become pieces of set. So if you're happy with maybe them getting repurposed as part of a design um, then you know theaters and charities that kind of would reuse it in an artistic way is, is a, actually quite an interesting option oh, yeah i hadn't thought about that but you're absolutely right they need to do set dressing so they need older things all the time uh alexander knight yeah so uh, for me in my experience facebook marketplace has worked a lot better for selling or giving away anything i don't know what it is but in comparison to craigslist i get a lot more people contacting me. So if you have a Facebook account and you haven't tried Marketplace, that's where I would go. Interesting. Mitchell Hill. Uh, schools and universities. Uh, in fact, I just gave some uh, stuff away to uh, the local university here in Delaware. And um, in some cases, or at least most of them, it's tax deductible. There you go, Courtney. The problem with photography gear these days is they, uh, if it's true photography gear that uses that old stuff called film, uh, film has gotten to be very hard to find and very hard to process. So giving it away to a school for educational use might be good in a historical aspect. Uh, you could give it, uh, I would look on uh, eBay. There are collectors who pay big bucks for some of those uh, outdated cameras and things if they're uh, collectible. Uh, check with Sammy's camera. They sell a lot of used cameras as well, especially a lot of vintage cameras. And if not there, check with some of the prop houses in Hollywood because uh, sometimes they're looking for those vintage uh, pieces of equipment uh, that uh, 
aren't around anymore, aren't used commonly to use in motion pictures that take place in a, another time. Nigel? Yeah, we have a camera store in Austin called Precision Camera, and I've discovered they don't give you a lot of money, but they do give you money for this stuff. So what I tend to do is I, I wait until I need something, a new lens or something, bulk up a whole bunch of stuff and see if they'll give me as part exchange. And that's normally the best way to get a price because uh, you get value for it and they get a discount without giving one. TJ, hope that helped you. Next question. Scott Muller in Germantown, New York, is back. Do you use any time tracking apps to keep track of work you do on editing or building shows and production? Chris Fenwick's going to start us off. Yeah, we use an app called Harvest. And Harvest is a, um, it's a desktop app. It has a little thing up in the menu bar, but there's also an iOS uh, device. It allows one person to sort of admin and create... Um, reports. They can do a search on a job and it'll tell us exactly how much time, as long as we're entering our data properly, how much time we've spent on a job. You can create as many um, uh, types of tasks on a job. So for example, I always click on the editing thing since I'm the editor, but there are meeting tabs and uh, I, I don't even, I said earlier I have a problem reading. I, I don't even read the other ones. I just know that I click on the second one down. Um, so we can track all the types of work that are being done on specific jobs and then it'll, you know, build weekly and monthly reports. It costs a little bit, but the functionality has really helped us uh, keep track of how we're spending our time. Mitch Hill. Yeah. Call me old fashioned, uh, spreadsheets, uh, work well for me because anybody can look at them. Anybody can figure out what's going on. An important tip um, if you're doing a job for somebody um, and it's uh, gratis or if you're donating your time for something, always keep track of your time, including in those circumstances, because you need to know how efficient you were in uh, turning around an edit or a production at any time. Chris Fenwick again. Yeah. Uh, along those lines, Mitch, we've act- I've actually lobbied for, uh, and I don't do it well enough, uh, just to keep track of um, I'm pushing for like just a category of R and D. There's a lot of time that we spend, you know, like oh, I'm working on Zoom ISO. I'm trying to figure out how to do this or that or whatever. And uh, oh, I just bought a new thing trying to make this, you know. And keeping track of that time is very interesting because you can you can sort of track your efficiency. I know a super quick story. Many years ago, when I first learned spreadsheets, I built a spreadsheet where I kept track of how many miles, how much time I spent getting to the job, and how much I was making for the job. And very quickly, there was one whole client that I thought was really cool. It was like, felt kind of prestigious to be working for this one particular studio. I, I wiped them out of my uh, answer list. I just stopped taking the calls because it, uh, functionally, it was an absolute waste of time. It wasn't productive. Interesting. I've I've gone through a couple of phases in my career about that. I used to track it closely. And I think when I was involved in an organization where multiple people were involved, um, that was very important to them to keep the metrics of labor costs and time tracking. I've completely gone away from it. On the rare cases that somebody needs a a kind of a timesheet, I find that I can go back and find her and look at the creation date and the stop date of uh, 
projects or things I worked on. If I know I worked on it in Final Cut, but I spent some time in OmniGraffle, I can go look at the documents from those things and recreate a time that's pretty accurate about what days and what hours I worked on it. But I try not to do that because, again, I, I've said this before, I think, on the show. I'm not a great believer in charging by or uh, doing things for clients based on time. My feeling has always been if you're good and fast, you make less. And if you're slow and bad, you make more if you're charging for time. And I'm not a big person who likes that idea. I want to be able to marinate in the pro, uh, marinate in the pro, in the project. And that's time sometimes between when you're actually thinking or dreaming or inventing what you're going to do next is to me every bit as valuable as the time I spend at the keyboard actually typing things in or working with, uh, building a project. That's me. Everybody approaches it in different fashions. And I understand completely organizations need those metrics. I just feel uncomfortable with them often. Mitchell? Yeah, Bill, you're spot on. I mean, you know, when you're thinking about a project and you're thinking about what you're going to do with the graphics and um, you're not actually doing, that's legitimate billing time. So here's the thing. I mean, I have some clients that want to be billed uh, by the hour and I do it but I don't really like to do that. I prefer a project rate and I like to negotiate that in advance. And if it's a client that I know well, then I know what I'm up against. I have a pretty good idea. And again, I do keep track of my hours so that I know how efficient I was. So that next time they come in and say, Hey, we're going to do the project at the same price as before. I can say yes or no. Uh, Chris, more thoughts. Yeah. And, and again, it's not only about the billing, uh, bill, but it's also about just keeping track of efficiency. I, I, I totally support that. If you are wasting a lot of time, you should know that the client should know that and yeah. everything. So we're not trying to get people. I don't think anybody's trying to get down to the point where you feel like, oh my gosh, I better click on the next uh, client thing for this, you know, 30 seconds of thought about it. It, it when you make it a burden, you don't do it. Right. Uh, and so that's why I went moved to that process of if somebody is really specific, I, no, I must have an hourly or I'll go back and I'll look at when I created the files, time, the date I created them, the time I created them. And then usually when the final was put out, I can find a date on that. And I just take everything in between and go, I worked on it for that long. But I try not to do that as much as I can. Uh, Mitch, did you have a final word before we move on? Yeah, sorry to keep coming in again. No, um, no, it, no. It's interesting where this conversation is taking us because it's a lot of the dynamics you have with your client. Um, I have a, a basic policy that I like to do um, a set rate, um, but here's how I usually do it. I say to the client, um, I'll do everything on the edit that you said. Um, it isn't generally supervised. If you don't like anything about it, I'll make the changes. No additional charge. Anything beyond that, a secondary change, or you make a change to something that you submitted in your script, then I'm going to start charging you. And I charge by the hour at that point so that they're, we're trying to give an incentive to get it right the first time, not just to figure that they could constantly update the project. Yeah, there's a famous old story about a plumber coming or an air conditioning repairman, I think it was because I was in Arizona coming and, you know, walked onto the property and uh, pulled the cover off the air conditioner and thought about it for a second, turned a screw, was finished, then he gave the client a $100 bill and they were outraged. He said, all you did was one little tiny thing and I want an itemized bill. And so he itemized it as... Turning the screw 10 cents, knowing which screw to turn, $99.99. 90, 90 
And that is the conundrum of this. If you've gotten so good at what you do that you're fast at it and can get great workout efficiently, you should never be penalized over somebody who has to really work 10 times harder to get the same result. So anyway, let's move on. Moving on with Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York, asking, Morning, guys. Another morning for us. On an M1 Mac Mini Ventura, it seems like the Wacom tablet doesn't work with the Freeform app. What are the drawing-capable productivity apps do you recommend on Mac OS? Thanks. Richard. Oops, sorry, I jumped on you. Sorry. Richard? Um, yeah, certainly. The uh, one that I used when I first started using the Wacom tablet was just a really simple one called just Whiteboard. Um, now, it's not a huge drawing app. It's a really simple one. I used it for Telestration when I first started using Telestrating kind of software. Uh, and it's, a, it's just a simple one on the App Store, Whiteboard. Uh, perfect. Next question. Next question in from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada, right here in our panel. Guy, have you tried the new adaptive noise suppression on the UVC-02 firmware 2.0? I turned it on and it didn't sound right. It sounded like my voice was doubled. Ooh, Guy Cochran's. Can we help him out? Yeah, I jumped into After Hours after installing the firmware update and was like, hey, what do you think of this sound? And then I, I shared screen and walked through all the different presets and uh, people agreed that it didn't sound right. So guess what I went and grabbed back again with the mix pre because while it, great, it does great video, the audio, man, it's, it's something's not right. I don't know. I need to talk to the folks over there and figure out what's going on. Maybe it's meant to be used with their gooseneck microphone. I don't know, but I, I had hooked up this uh, Rode NT... Uh, a Rode uh, broadcaster mic, which is a large diaphragm. So I had this mic running into it and uh, it just, I couldn't get a good sound out of it. It, it had lots of compressor, noise suppression, uh, attack, threshold, all that. And I played with it and I just could not get a good sound. So I don't know what's going on with it. Hmm. Uh, Alexander has a thought here. Yeah, I, it took me two seconds for it, for me to just turn it off. So I don't know if I needed to leave it on soft experiment maybe it uh, it needs time to actually just listen to your voice and learn i don't have a feeling it's that intelligent but uh yeah it's it's really strange experience i'll have to talk to roland see what they say okay next question andy kokendorfer excuse me john fultz in ceilings grove pennsylvania asking we're broadcasting a basketball game saturday the client wants to use their own commentators from a flow eight how do you do a mix minus on that device? I never used it before. Yeah, this is an interesting question because I had not heard of this. Oh, wait a second. I'm I'm in the wrong question here. Um, uh, I was actually looking up the next question. Uh, so I want to use their own commentators from a Flow 8. How to do a mix minus on that device? I have never used one. And so I guess you're, you're running into a panel there where nobody has used that particular uh, Flow 8. So, uh, John, sorry, you're going to have to try back a different time. Let's head to the next question. All right. Here's Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, is there a low-cost way to measure speech transmission index in a broad a boardroom? Sorry. Thanks. Yeah, this was informative to me, too, because I hadn't heard of that. But I guess there's an, actually a metric called the speech transmission index, and you can use math to measure channel characteristics, and then they assign a value to that. And there's actually a way to numerically say, are the words getting through to the people listening to that? I was not familiar with that before this question. Mitchell, do you have an idea how this works? I'm just going to say uh, what happened to the old RT60 test or the hand clapping yeah, I think this has to do with whether or not there are any anomalies that make it hard to understand. And that could be um, 
pronunciation and enunciation. It could be things like digital hits. It seems like this is a numeric. Uh, it says it's a measure of speech transmission quality. The absolute measurement is a complex science, and uh, there's a scale of bad one up to five, I guess. And so you can get a rating for any transmission. I imagine this probably started in radio or or telephone or something, but it's still relevant today. And they've got tables, and it looks like it's a reasonably well-developed science. So I'll have to do some more research on that. I didn't know much about it before this question. So thank you for putting the question in, Andy. And uh, I'm going to pay attention to it and, and go do some some more research. But for right now, we got to go on to the next question. Next one in from Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, PA. Zach wants to know, what's the panel's verdict? On sound devices, noise assist versus C-suite, C-Vox on the Apollo. Mitchell Hill. Um, I think it's a matter of uh, a taste um, and uh, number of people that are using one or the other. I don't have either, but I really, really want that noise assist uh, because I see it being used over and over and over as a uh, a great uh, a great system. And because it's tied into the Mix Pre, um, it's generally... Uh, easier to set up than any other device. But, uh, Bill, you have that. Uh, what do you think? I do. I just adopted, a, a, about a week and a half ago, I adopted the C-Suite. Uh, I have a Universal Audio Apollo Solo here. It is a plug-in. It is not an inexpensive plug-in at about $300. I think it's $299 if you use uh, a coupon or something. I think it may be $350 retail, retail. Um, and I was setting it up with Mickey in the back end. And I think Mickey was pretty impressed with it. One of the nice things about it is it only has two controls on it. And so you can set a level of ambience and you can set a level, I can't remember what the other one is called, but uh, he was monitoring for me as I was sitting at my microphone and talking. And I've always had a problem with background in this room. This room has some fan noise and other uh, anomalies that make it a little difficult. Most of the time people can hear me just fine. But I do do a lot of voiceover work, and I, while I have a voice booth, a soundproof booth in there, sometimes it's just much easier to sit at my desk and knock out a quick read for somebody, particularly on an audition or some sort of I want to hear how this sounds thing. So I was thinking, is there any way to get my background sound down to very truly acceptable levels? And C-Suite seemed to impress Mickey by how quickly it took us maybe 10 minutes to set it up. And he was listening, and I was performing, and he got my settings to where he liked them. And now it's a matter of click it in or click it out. And it seems to do an extraordinarily good job. So, Bill, is that a uh, Cedar device, or is that something that it, just it licenses the Cedar algorithms? Uh, it's not from Cedar. Universal Audio was a, Universal Audio has been around since the early days. They were famous for things like the LA two A compressors that were in all the big studios everywhere. Universal Audio has been a name forever. They did a. They're one of the companies that did this transition into the digital space, and now they have tons and tons and tons of emulators for, like, classic pieces of hardware and also new things like the C-Suite, which is designed specifically for voiceover and for voice applications to remove noise, room noise, background noise, hums, and things like that, and leave the voice content as precise as possible. I don't know what alchemy or magic they are using to do it, but uh, according to his ears and my experience here, when I click it on, it makes things a lot better. So that's all I know. Alexander, you had some thoughts? 
Yeah, I was just curious what the setup process was like. Does it how does the plugin ask you to be silent and then does it measure the ambient noise floor or does it can you just start talking and it just does it automatically? You know, I was trying to stay out of that because Mickey is extraordinary. We have uh, Mickey Makachor in the back end in Manila in the Philippines has great ears. He he is an audio professional uh, and understands this stuff from society. So when you're working with somebody like that, my 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 point is I'm going to try to affect this process as little as possible. I'm going to do my job and let him uh, figure out where he heard it. He he started with particular setting. It took us maybe five minutes uh, for him to listen and get to what he thought was the right mix for me on here. And if I go silent, you, I, I, you actually see a little waveform in the CVOX module and it's showing you how much it's applying. And when I'm not speaking, there's like nothing coming out. So I, it, it seems very effective to me. That's, that's my impression of it at this point. Mitchell? Yeah, a lot of times it has to do with uh, who's driving it. Because if you set it up incorrectly, it has its own little things. Yours is perfectly silent. Uh, I want noise assist, but uh, I'm willing to be educated that there are other things out there. And then in a completely different area, Zach, forgive me for jumping out of the question just a little bit. Uh, behind me on my voiceover uh, theater, and I use a U87, which is a very sensitive uh, high-end microphone, with a uh, equally sensitive and high-end uh, processor. I use a Neve 8801. And the way the older analog devices like the Neve use uh, noise assist or some kind of noise reduction is they use an expander. Uh, that expands when there's nothing there. It expands out the uh, audio. It does the opposite of what a compressor does. It actually reduces the volume, so it cuts out the noise. So it's all it's all one half dozen things or another. All things considered, uh, the noise assist uh, has been the best sounding to my ears. Um, when I use Cedar, the hardware Cedar, um, it sounds like it's uh, crunching a little bit on the words. And uh, Bill, you have something brand new, so I'm all I'm all. Years. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting dynamics of working with Mickey on this is I think Mickey, like a lot of audio engineers who are very good that I know, they always start out with the lowest adjustment they can get away with. They listen and they try not to affect things too much. I think on our first pass, the room suppression, he had set it in the 20s somewhere, and he was pretty impressed with that. In the end, he kept listening and adding a little more ambience so that there was a little more kind of natural. And he got, I think I'm at like 67 now. And what that's telling me is that however they've crafted the algorithms, you can do an aggressive room suppression. And what he's listening for is that it's not affecting the voice even as you're suppressing that. In the old noise suppression systems, and I agree with you, Mitch, the Cedar hardware that I've used on sets, it would solve big problems in, in great ways. It was very valuable. But if you got it up too high, it was clipping parts of speech. And you can hear the effect of that, that crunchiness on the voice. And in Mickey's opinion, it appears that there wasn't as much of the, even with this relatively high setting that I have. So that, those are just, that's all I know as a non-audio professional, semi-professional, I guess you could call me. Uh, we've been on this a while. Let's move on to the next question. By the way, you are a professional. Uh, okay. Moving on to Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Zoom's new feature called Zoom Spots, a video co-working experience that sounds a lot like a never-ending Zoom call will launch later this year. How will this differ from one that we do every day now on After Hours? 
That's a, this is a tough one. We don't have anybody raising. You know, it's a brand new feature, and and we try our best to imagine what something that has not been released is going to be like. We love talking about the technology behind those kinds of things, and we certainly have a panel almost every day here that is eminently qualified to make those kind of speculations. But if it's something that hasn't actually been released, if Zoom, I don't know if Zoom spots are out in the wild. We also tend to say, rather than speculating on what it'll be like, let's wait until the thing actually gets out and see how it actually performs. We've all had experiences with the marketing department of a company saying, this is going to be the next great thing, and it kind of falls short. I'm not saying that about Zoom at all. They've done a fabulous job of improving their uh, product and being very careful about that kind of things. But I think we're going to have to wait until it hits the street, I'm sure we will be talking about it almost every day after it does that, and especially on after hours where everybody can get together and toss these things around. Chris, you had a thought? Yeah, you know, a little insider thing here. Uh, John and Keenan and I and a group of us from the Space Shot uh, project uh, pitched an idea to some people at Zoom. Uh, interestingly, very similar to, to what this sounds like. Uh, we were going to call it Zoom Spaces, Space shot, see? Uh, but the idea is that, you know, if you think about it, a Zoom meeting is something that you set up and then you wait around and then you go to that meeting. Uh, but to have a communal area like going to an office where you can all meet, dip in, come out, leave messages, perpetual chat, right? Um it's it's a neat idea, and i th- I hope it's I hope it's a good product for him because, as I think a lot of us here agree, of the video conferencing tool, Zoom is far superior and has much more upside potential than all the others. Um, you know, in the eighties and nineties, I think Windows in the seventies VHS won over Beta because of marketing. In the nineties. Windows one over Mac because of marketing. And I would hate to see the better tool not do well because somebody else, Microsoft, has a better, you know, squeeze on the industry. Um, Anyway, I wish Zoom all the best. Well, yeah, I hear that. And we've, I think, run into those kind of things where a market leader doesn't innovate. I'm, I'm, Zoom is innovating rapidly, so we'll see what happens. But I understand with competition like Microsoft, they have huge uh, engineering But as it turns out, it is more than innovation. Yeah. Being good doesn't mean you win. Right. Well, and it's also... We've seen that all too many times. You have to do more than just be good. Having worked around corporate structures too, what corporate needs is often different than an individual user needs. And sometimes they're working on this. Here's what the platform needs. Here's what our global enterprise needs. And because of that, they kind of take the safest route that'll work for the most circumstances. And they can't really stretch beyond those boundaries. John Prado had some thoughts. John? So they they showed this at, at Zoomtopia. It looked really, really interesting. Paul and I met on a platform called Blab seven, eight years ago. And and the interesting thing about Blab was there's multiple rooms with discoverability. So you had a bunch of people in like breakout rooms, but then they had the title of what they were talking about and you could go in and watch them and you could lurk in the chat room and talk and then you could pop into a seat if you wanted to, to converse. And so uh, I can't wait to try this out. We'll see what it looks like. Yeah, that's very much what Chris was describing. That sounds very interesting. Courtney? Yeah, you remember the old CB simulator on uh, Oh. AOL. That was my start in social media. That sounds exactly like what this is, except with video. 
There you go. <laughs> that CB simulator is that it was, I was on CB simulator with my handle because we were faking CB back in the early, early days. And that's where I got into an argument with somebody and I realized that being under a handle meant I didn't have to take responsibility for what I said. And I stopped using handles on CB simulator. And I started, I, t- I promised myself I was only going to do anything on the internet under my own name. So I would be responsible for what I said. And I think it was a, it was a good decision. Yeah. You go back in the way back machine. I'm embarrassed by some things, but not as much as I would have been if I had not had that day where I went, nah, I shouldn't argue like that. Anyway, next question. 10-4, Rubber Ducky. Uh, moving on, Zach Phillips in Philadelphia has a question. It's now more than twice a week that I find myself needing a very specific length and angle cable. Is it time to bite the bullet and learn to make cables? And what can I make aside from power, XLR, mic, BNC, and Ethernet? Can you make HDMI or USB? Okay, we got a bunch of people who have raised their hands for this. We're going to start with Alexander Knight. I think making your own cables is a really good skill to have. I love making patch cables to solve all, all sorts of problems. So if you haven't done it, it's not that really hard to learn how to solder. There's lots of great tutorials on YouTube. I, For me, I don't like making cables where they're extremely thin, tiny little wires and delicate. I would not even go anywhere near HDMI or making my own USB cables. But that's just me. <laughs> I resonate with that. Mitch? Yeah, first of all, USB has uh, active electronics in the connector itself, so you don't really want to mess with that. And it's 24 contacts you have to do with, so I would completely not even think about that. HDMI, second cousin, uh, also pretty bad to be making yourself. So do yourself a favor, go to B&H or somewhere and buy those. All the other stuff, if there is a nitrate connector for them, it's fair game. There you go. Courtney Gooden? Well, USB... Type A or Type B is only four wires, not 24 of that. I would not make an HDMI cable. Uh, and, you know, it's good to learn how to do XLRs and learn how to solder and B and Cs. Those are pretty easy. Ethernet, those are uh, crimp-ons, no soldering involved. Uh, you know, you just have to get you the crimping tool that uh, um, attaches those uh, RJ45 connectors on the end. I would not do um, Fisher connectors or Limo connectors. Those are the kind that Alexander was talking about that have the teeny little wires and the case that is assembled around connectors. Uh, even if they only have three or four cables in them, they're so tiny to solder on. And one little <clears throat> solder bridge from one pin to the next ruins a $50 connector. So I wouldn't even attempt those. Yeah. And I've been surprised by how many of, you know, I, I w- would say I need a, a, a two meter whatever cable. And you go, why are they charging 50 bucks for two meters of copper? And then you find out it's not actually two meters of copper. It's a very precision device designed cable with active electronics in both ends. So there are little printed circuit boards molded into those connectors on the end. And uh, there is actually a reason it gets up into those higher price points. Uh, Mitch, you had all final thought here? Yeah. One uh, quick safety tip. Not all HDMI cables are made alike. Um, you really should shop for high-quality HDMI because you don't want anything messing with your uh, your video. And if you go to Gerald Undone, I think he does a nice little speech about that on uh, how to evaluate the quality of HDMI because you can you can have a, a perfectly good uh, cable that you just purchased and it's not going to work with uh, 4K. And that's Courtney, uh, the oh, difference. Courtney, you had a reflection back? 
Yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention is to make sure that you match the cable to the connector because especially with BNC connectors and uh, anything that has a certain impedance design for it, uh, the diameter of the cable is critical. And the length of the cable sometime in HDMI is critical. And uh, you can really mess up an HDMI cable if you don't have the right type of cable mated with the right type of connector. So I wouldn't even attempt those. And when you're choosing BNCs, make sure that the... Uh, the cable, the connectors that you get match exactly the cable that you're getting, the number of the cable, you know, RG59 versus RG6 versus the mini coax, because uh, the crimping tools and the things that you use to attach and solder that that uh, those wires in and the pin diameters are different depending upon the impedance of the cable. Zach, I hope we know we're scaring you too much because I think all of us have spent time stripping and, and wiring cables, coax and the rest of them. And I do think it makes you feel like you, you're you're at the next level of understanding some of this stuff. You're taking a step up into the importance of getting good cables. There's nothing worse than a big production being taken down because somewhere in the midst you've used a, a substandard cable and it's failing on you and you're getting a problem that you can't fix. So, uh, yes, dive into it. Enjoy it. Next question. Greg Gibson, Washington, D.C., asking, on the Roadcaster Pro, what's the difference between main and chat? Courtney's going to help us. Courtney? Well, chat is more chatty than main. Now, as Mickey Macacore pointed out to me as we broke in this Roadcaster Pro here, uh, is that the main output is multi-channel. It contains all the channels, uh, eight or so, I think, uh, uh, if you have the right driver in your PC, uh, that it sends over the USB bus for the main channel. Chat channel only sends two channels. So uh, if you're using it with Zoom, it works better with chat because Zoom has some problem because it's receiving all eight of those channels and they interfere, uh, they clash with each other. And that was my problem earlier today. Before the show started, I was in main instead of chat and they were hearing echoes and I was moved to one side and it sounded weird. So if you're using it with Zoom, use the chat output instead of the main outputs. There you go. Next question. From Courtney Gooden, who you just heard, in Hollywood, California, has anyone gone to a theater and seen a film on a direct view LED screen yet? Apparently, Samsung makes an Onyx series screen for HDR movie theaters or expensive home theater rooms. Well, that's the per domain of Nigel. Nigel, what, what say you? So, uh, I asked whether we had sold any of these yet, and the answer is uh, nobody has said they have. I know there's actually only two uh, theaters in the U.S. you can go to. There are some in other places. I have to tell you, I've not really heard any demand for this yet in the home theater world. People are starting to talk about Samsung Wall. So Samsung had the Wall product, which was sort of a Lego set. Now they've come pre-set in 110 and 140-inch sort of pre-built groups. Um and they're starting to get some traction. Uh, but I've not heard about anyone asking for the Onyx yet. Nigel, do you have any idea what the power using profile of those LED walls for home uses? Are they efficient or are they highly power hungry? They're very power hungry. And so you, uh, plus the fact you're probably going to put uh, some sort of conditioner on the other side of all of your home theater stuff, given the sheer cost of that stuff. Um, the other thing is there's some debate about uh, in home theatres about whether it's actually a pleasant way to watch a movie because they can be too bright, those screens. And in and in the better home theatres, maybe the Onyx fixes this, but in the better home theatres, a good projector with a good 
a screen that will bounce back more light is what people prefer at this point. There you go. Thank you, Mitchell. We're in sort of a transition theory uh, area with uh, LED displays. There's all kinds of different branded versions. And there's only about four or five manufacturers of the actual panels. But I'm hearing all kinds of crazy uh, claims by Sony for their new crystal LED system that they're coming out with. And what they're all basically doing is they're increasing the amount of brightness that they can put out. And also the pitch is getting tighter and tighter. So you get to see things that look more like a picture than it does a uh, LED screen. Courtney. I've seen that they've had the crystal LED screens at NAB for about the last four or five years. And it is quite amazing. Um, I haven't seen it in any theaters. One one reason I pose this question is uh, tomorrow, The uh, if you're in the Hollywood area or the Los Angeles area, uh, the SMPTE meeting is going to be uh, in Culver City where they're going to be showing, uh, they've installed one of these uh, Samsung HDR cinema technology 8K screens in a theater there, in five theaters there actually. That's part, Amazon has done it, and uh, I'll put the link in the chat. Uh, it is free to anyone to attend, as all SMPTE meetings are. And uh, I'll know tomorrow at 9 a.m. in Culver City uh, what it looks like, because they've apparently installed, installed four, five of these in uh, some old Arclight theaters that were closed down in Culver City. So we'll see. Cool. Like. The other problem it mentions in there is the problem of doing sound in a the theater. Uh, because these screens are obviously opaque to sound, unlike regular movie theaters, which have perforated screens and the speakers behind the screen. Uh, with LED screens, you have the problem you can't put the speakers behind them because they won't go through. So they have to beam the sound and bounce it off the screen and back into the theater. And they, they also have these theaters set up for that type of sound system. So I'll be able to listen to that tomorrow. So oh, interesting. So the center channel is going to get reflected off the screen rather than that. That's interesting. Well, yeah, looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it tomorrow after your experience. Let's go to the next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada. What kind of upload bandwidth would you feel comfortable with to stream reliable 4K30? Guy. Yeah, I'd say 50 to 100 would make me feel comfortable. It depends on the encoder that you're using. So a few years ago when we got our first uh, Wowza Clearcaster, that was a very expensive device that pushed 4K. And uh, it was like a jet airplane when you turned that encoder on and ran 4K through. It was pretty quiet at 1080. Turn on 4K and it was like whoosh. Nowadays, uh, with these modern encoders, you can get an Epifan Pearl, add the 4K upgrade, and you can do H.265. And now you could half that bandwidth. So instead of having to go with a uh, massive bandwidth, now you could feel comfortable more at uh, double or triple, I'd say to be safe. Uh, so 12 megabit times three, so 36 would be an okay number. And I'm using the, um, the Talon from Osprey. And that one will give you 422 color, H.265. So the, the Pearl Nano, I don't believe that one will give you uh, 10-bit color, I'll only give you 8-bit color. And there's a few other features. I'd be looking at the the talent if you want to do this super seriously. Uh, you could try software, but I do not recommend trying software uh, for a, a big production. You might uh, you might crash and burn, but you would want like a video card with an HEVC, uh, like an NVIDIA, one of the 4090s or something big and bad to be able to pull this off. Alexander. Do we know if the, the Blackmagic 4K Studio console, does that, can you stream... 4K from that console? Kind of shaking his head. Which, the web the presenter? 4K, 
the is it the constellation whatever that it's not the rack mount one but it's the does 4k but i don't know if it streams over that because that was my next thing that i was thinking about oh, that, upgrading. that's funny are you talking about this this older one um so here here's the actual video where Maybe i stream tv 4K. studio yeah, that's, so that's the one that I used with this one. I'll put a link to the chat in this video where I, I walk through exactly how we do it, and you'll see the, uh, our team using the, the Clearcaster and then punching in a, another um, sub-switch. Uh, yeah, there's the Waza Clearcaster there, and there's that TV studio. So we used that as the switcher. It has no functionality for uh, encoding, so we paired it with the Waza Clearcaster which I believe Richard Lavery has as well still. Uh, Richard, you, you don't look too happy with that choice Richard, anymore. you're weighing. Oops, I think Sorry, you're the, yeah. um, I'm, I'm still very happy with it. The encoding is, is gorgeous. I'm not happy with Wowza's business practices, but that's an entirely separate question. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a really lovely encoder. So for 4K, um, it's one of the reasons why we got it. In fact, Guy recommended it. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's the nicest encoder that we, we've seen of the different ones that we've tried. There you go. Uh, hopefully that took care of you. Alexander, next question. From Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on Google DreamMix AI. DreamMix can generate videos from photo samples and text prompts. Video mid-journey? Uh, John Preto. Yeah, isn't this great? Every day we get a new application coming out in the AI world. And and so I'm super, super excited to see Adobe's foray into AI because they're going to integrate AI into Premiere, After Effects, Photoshop, Illustrator. So yes, you're going to see generative video coming on AI. Tons of I've seen at least four or five announcements in video and also 3D and then and then vector drawing. So lots of stuff coming this year. Thank you, uh, John, Andy. I hope that took care of you. Next question, Douglas Carmichael. I'll be purchasing an OWC MiniStack STX to complement my M2 Pro Mac Mini, 32 gigabyte RAM, four terabyte internal SSD. If I had to prioritize purchasing an external SSD for my sample libraries or an 8-terabyte plus hard disk drive for archiving, which should it be? Alexander Knight. Yeah, as far as the sample library stuff, I still prefer to use SSDs. I mean, I, big hard, spinning hard drives to me, I only use them for like archival purposes, stuff that occasionally needs to be... Um, you know, read from, but uh, yeah, just because of the speeds, you know, I, I only use it for backup and for long-term storage. Anything that needs to be read and written to often, I will only use an SSD for that stuff. Oops, I'm on the wrong place here. Hang on a second. Something's not working. There we go. Uh, Alexander, that was going to question her, so we're moving on to the next question. Sorry about that. From Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, PA, with all its precious finickiness, why use a HyperDeck for playback over a software edition? And Richard Lavery is going to start us off. Yeah, I, I'm not too sure about what the finickiness is that um, that Zach's referring to. Because um, the number one reason, the, the two main reasons for us is that reliability and uh, and picture quality. Um, the HyperDeck is in, usually a very reliable, again, depending on what you mean by finickiness, uh, reliable playback device. Um, once you get over kind of the um, having to match uh, uh, ProRes, having to match frame rates and all the different kind of things that uh, for, 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 um, for switchers that are very specific to those things, usually then it's an incredibly reliable thing. Um, we have, we love PlayUpB, we love QLab and other programs like that, 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 like those. We use QLab. 
absolutely all the time um, for for video playback. But one of my one of the problems with QLab is restarting, and you know, if you're on a long playback of a file, usually then I will go to HyperDeck to play those back rather than you know short files. I'll use QLab or PlayIB or something like that. So you know, reliability. It's a dedicated device that's going to do that one thing um, has been one of our main reasons. Mitch, real quick. Pardon me. I agree, I agree with Richard. I think a, a bespoke uh, hardware device is always going to trump a software device because that depends on other things like maybe the computer it's sitting on. My finickiness, I would think that uh, the only finickiness that I get from my both of my um, my HyperDex is that uh, putting the files on the uh, SD card, they must be the same, the exact same. So the workaround of that, Zach, is to make sure you run it through media encoder or compressor to make sure that the settings are exactly the same for every file you put on there. And then once you've done that, no problem. Courtney, do you have a quick thought to close? Yeah, if you're planning back something that needs an alpha channel, uh, that's one of the few ways to do it. A lot of software won't do that for you. Uh, he, software is much more versatile because it can allow you to put in uh, markers and uh, uh, loops and and tune it up very easily. Uh, if you need to play back loops and things, it's much better to use software. But then you're going to be working with a, a long GOP compression in order for a, you know, a laptop or something to be able to handle back to handle high-def playback uh, without dropping frames or anything. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, if a Mac OS app has a Mac App Store version and a standalone version, which version do you prefer to purchase? Richard. I mean, back in the early days of the Mac App Store, there was there was a lot more disparity than there is now between apps that would be on the, the App Store and that had to fit in with Apple's you know, practices and, and, and the constraints. Um, I, even then, I would usually opt for the Mac App Store because of the ease of the reinstall. Uh, moving between different computers, always having that list to easily get to all the different things, uh, especially as a, as, as a, as a small charity, uh, as a business, we can then set up multiple computers with really simple clicks because it's all there in our download list, all re-downloadable re-download, from one main source. Very, very simple. I concur. Next question. Uh, now let's go to Alexander. Alexander. Yeah. In addition to what was already said about ease of use um, and you know all your subscriptions in one place, the only time I will not use the Mac App Store version is if it's somewhat limited in functionality and I want to experience all the features, then I absolutely will use a standalone version. Nigel? Yeah, my only addition is the only time I would use a standalone install is when the product had a feature that I could not live without. I am willing to compromise on most features to make them easier to install and recover. There you go. Next question. Next one in from Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia, down under. For streaming and 4K, what should you consider when buying an encoder? Guy? Yeah, there's a lot to this. It depends on where you're going. What kind of 4K are we talking about? Are you trying to do 4K SRT? Are you trying and feed it up to something like SRT for contribution type method? Um, it just depends on where you want to go. Though, the one that I mentioned earlier, the Epifan Pro Nano, is really popular at the price point because it's hardware and it's reliable. It just does a single thing. So I'd be asking around. You know, good job asking on here. Uh, ask other people that are real world using it and pushing it up all the time. Uh, the one that we've settled on right now is the um, Osprey Talon 4K SC, and that's, again, because it has the 10-bit color multi-channel audio. Uh, it gives you nice status indicators as to what's going on as far as uh, the temperature of the device if you're overrunning it. And it, it does do uh, even... Uh, 
higher than regular 4K. It does 4096 by 2160p60. So that's the other thing is, are you doing 30 or 60? Then you've got HDMI and SDI in. So it depends on that as well. If you want uh, HDMI or SDI, this does both. So a couple things to take a look at, but it's not that expensive in comparison. You can buy two of those for the price of what Richard paid for his Clearcaster. Sorry to stick it to you, Richard, but yeah, things, things have evolved in the last three years. Next question. From Stuart Pearson in Central Scotland, using standard Zoom Pro account with OBS for hybrid solution at our camera club, a virtual display is running as an extended screen, which is always shared to the remote Zoom participants, unable to view normal Zoom window while share is active. And that's going to be a conditional thing. And I would imagine, um, you know, Zoom is funny. It, it has so many modes depending on how many monitors you have up and then trying to figure out which one is going out. Uh, I don't have, I, I never work with OBS, so I'm actually a poor source of information about this. And I guess looking through the panel, I don't know of anybody who's one of our Zoom gurus. Uh, we do have them occasionally. Plus, the Zoom team does come on often. And every couple of months or every usually once a month, or so, uh, we'll get some of those guys here on the panel. If you can keep your eyes open for when they arrive, you will get literal access to the back end of the Zoom team and anything possible to do in Zoom, they will know exactly how to do it. So, uh, sorry we can't hit this one out of the ballpark, but I'm hoping. Uh, did you have, I see your finger coming up. Uh, oh, Guy has some thoughts and Chris Fenwick has, has some thoughts. Chris, go ahead. Uh, I, let's let Guy go first and I want to uh, add to what Guy says. Okay, Guy, take it away. Yeah, I would take a look at using a, a Zoom room with a, a Zoom room license. I mean, it, it is, I believe, $49 a month. But yeah, you could persistently pin uh, what you want uh, when a share screen appears. You could say, I want this display on HDMI 1 or now even NDI. So you could kick it to wherever you want. But that's the way to do it is with a Zoom room license. And and that a Zoom room license can go into any meeting or webinar and it it can so basically like let's say you have three displays you could say i want active speaker here i want gallery here and i want share screen when it appears here so you you can make that persistent in the back end um, of your zoom room you just go into the zoom.us site click on your zoom room and you can uh, change those displays cool that sounds like a solution chris do you have that your last yeah, thought and i think what i would add that's good good advice guy um when you're doing a, a zoom screen share Stuart. It has a way of really taking over a computer, and I think that might be what you're um, what you're experiencing. If you're trying to share a screen and you're already using OBS, what I would recommend doing, and let me just move something out of the way here, um, this is how I share a screen, and I'm using OBS to share my screen. Now, the way I have things wired is I have a camera. Uh, which goes through uh, an ATEM, and then I take the USB out into the computer. Instead of taking the output of the ATEM directly into um, a Zoom, what I do is I take it into OBS first. OBS then creates, uh, you need to create a, a 1920 by 1080 um, project or canvas, whatever, in OBS. Make that one of your scenes. Make the... Um, uh, the screen, uh, another scene, and then when you when you share that other screen, it is as though it is a camera. Um, that way, I'm not going into the Zoom share screen function, which has this funky way of just taking over the computer. Um, and 
everybody else's as well. So that might be an easier way to share a screen. You have all the parts. You have the OBS. You have the Zoom. Uh, it, it's not it's not super hard to to do. You create a scene for each look that you want. You then import the. You probably know this. You're already using OBS. Then you import. Um, the thing you want, and you're just going to do a screen share. What you'll do is you'll, a screen capture, I think they call it, uh, and then you'll scale that to fit the 1920 by 1080 canvas. Um, that might be a better way to do what you're doing. Nice. We're about to head into our uh, next hour and our special guest today, but I did want to mention one thing before we finish up. If you are interested in ever joining the panel here on Office Hours, uh, there is a process. If you're interested in doing that, uh, just look in the after hours or look in, uh, I'm sorry, the messages that come out and you will see a join the panel link there. You'll get some training ahead of time and some uh, kind of a, a pre-look at how things are produced daily. Uh, there is a form to sign up for the training for it. Once you go through that, you can become uh, one of the panelists here on Office Hours. And believe me, it's a lot of fun. It, it's a great sense of camaraderie. Plus, uh, you're going to learn an amazing amount by just sitting here and listening to and trying to process all this stuff. So it is the top of the hour, and that means where special guest is coming in. It is our dear friend Richard Lavery, who's been here forever. And I, I keep worrying about myself. Is it Lavery or Lavery? Because I've known you for such a long time, and I keep getting those two mixed up in my head. Richard, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, it's Lavery, like Lars, Mike. Okay, That's the easiest way to go for it in, in our circles. Um, if you're in England, it's Lavery, um, <laughs> which is normally what I get. Uh, the, the most common mispronunciation is Lavery. But Lavery, like Lav. Nice. Well, regardless, Richard has been one of our stalwarts here, and he is a theater professional, the artistic director at the Accidental Theater in Belfast. And he was really early into this process of taking a legitimate theater, a staged theater, and becoming, at the beginning of COVID, a hub for innovation and for doing this new hybrid and and digital-first out of a theater onto the interwebs. And so if you're interested at all in this kind of thing, Richard has a presentation for us today on kind of what he's seen over the course of the last couple of years in making this transition. Richard, what have you got for us today? Yeah, I was going to do a slightly less of a presentation than I've done in the past. Um, certainly whenever I've been part of Office Hours in the past, I've done kind of breakdowns of what we've got and what we've done as part of our kit. And they're all still available on the Office Hours website. So you feel free to to kind of go into them and you know, have a have we look if you like. Because um, I'm not really going to go through the kind of nitty gritty of what's wired to what. I might cover some of that. But I kind of wanted to do more of a overview of why uh, a venue, uh, why it's a good idea, why it's a difficult idea, what are the, the challenges of it, and then answer any kind of questions that, that might permeate around that from the panel and elsewhere. So I'll, I'll try and keep it simple in terms of presentation. I don't want to go into a big keynote uh, and then throw everything at everyone. Um, uh, I think it would be easier to stay, stay uh, slight. Uh, but today, certainly I, I'm coming in from the stage of the theatre. I don't know if I would call... Um, call ourselves a legitimate theatre um, uh, just because uh, we are a what would be normally referred to as a, uh, a kind of non um, uh, oh I even lost the term from my head but it's non-traditional art space 
So you're kind of so gleefully used- illegitimate theater. <laughs> but yes, happily. Uh, happily illegitimate theater. No problems with the illegitimacy uh, of, of our, our theatrical status. Um, uh, Josh asked in, in Discord a couple of days ago, you know, in terms of setting up a, a building, uh, do you need royal consent? Um, and you know, you don't need that um, in the UK. Um, but certainly, uh, we, we 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 are still on the kind of illegitimate end, shall we say? Because uh, this used to be an old bank. So uh, in 2017. Um, and this is after several years of accidental as, a, as an organization taking over lots of kind of unused and uh, unusual spaces in, in Belfast. In 2017, we moved into this, what is formerly a, a northern bank um, in, in Shaftesbury Square. Um, it's an unusual location. It was, it was empty for about 10 years. Um, it's a three-story, well, two-story uh, building. It's a ground floor, first floor, and second floor in, in UK parlance, along with a basement and, and so forth. So we converted it into a place for experimentation in the arts. Northern Ireland has a very traditional arts scene, uh, a very traditional, um, in, when I say traditional, it's in the naturalism uh, kind of form of, of theatre. Um, it doesn't tend to go into more avant-garde avenues uh, and more, more kind of uh, uh, yeah, experimental kind of places. So uh, we set up the building as a place for younger artists and for current artists to experiment. Um, to It's a small space, it only hits, seats about 100 people. Um, it has uh, other kind of offices and spaces available, so we wanted it to kind of house a lot of different things. Uh, we wanted to house performances and workshops. There's a rehearsal room that we built so that people can come and, you know, create an entire show from in one space. They can rehearse it. They could do the admin for it in offices that we have, and then they can actually stage it and then immediately outgrow us. The entire idea is that you outgrow this theatre very, very quickly and then go to larger stages in, in Belfast and Dublin and London and wherever you can get to. Um, so we're very much about the the, the starting uh, kind of grassroots uh, of arts in both theatre and music and, and dance and, and kind of other art forms as well. Uh, and uh, um, so it's a unusual space to kind of convert. Um, it's as I said, as a bank, it doesn't uh, it's 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 not doesn't lend itself immediately to theatrical usage, and slightly less so to digital um, theatrical usage. Um, it's got um, some unusual architecture that you have to get around when it's not a traditional space, um, and some challenges because it doesn't have parking close by. It's right in the middle of a large square. It's very busy. It's not soundproofed, um, so you probably hear maybe every so often some noises from outside. Um, so, but it's a really um, fun space, and it, uh, it kind of allowed us to move into uh, kind of running a small venue um, with very little money. Um, we started with absolutely no investiture capital-wise from any government bodies. We started it just solely on the basis of um, uh, what the venue itself could earn to cover its own costs. So it's entirely designed to earn its own keep um, because of different funding reasons in, in the UK and in Northern Ireland in particular. Funding can disappear very, very quickly. You know, we saw that with the pandemic. Situations can change very, very quickly. So we tried to design the venue to survive on the basis of its own income uh, and and uh, uh, its you know things like memberships and things like uh, training programs and things like uh, tickets to shows uh, would pay the, for the majority, you know, ninety percent of of the actual theatre. And that's allowed us to do a lot and do a lot, but in stages. Um, 
So when we first started uh, as a building, you know, digital was very much on my mind, but very far away. Um, we made sure that we had decent internet. Um, we, we didn't get there immediately, but we certainly tried. Um, so we made we, we kind of put the underpinnings in first, you know, the kind of the, the kind of the digital kind of uh, networking system in first, uh, then allowed us to build up. You know, we started with just two small PTZ cameras. Um, PTZ optics cameras, actually, strange enough, since yesterday. Um, and uh, we um, just had two cameras over NDI. They would literally stream um, uh, the, uh, the feed into my office uh, upstairs uh, into a iMac. Uh, it was wirecast, and you know, the audio would come up in the, over um, uh, Ethernet extended uh, XLR from, a de from an analog desk. And then um, you know, our streams are really simple bog standard. The PTZ.tex cameras are great, but not necessarily great for theatrical production because it's very dark uh, mostly and it's very difficult in most cameras, even our current ones, which I'll go through in a second, um, uh, struggle with low light. Uh, and that's one of the big challenges of, for most theatrical recordings or theatrical streaming. Um, but so we start with those kind of really simple uh, cameras. It's still, you know, it's simple, but still like that. It's thousand, that's several thousand pounds worth of investment, which was which was difficult at that stage. Um, uh, and then that allowed us to start to test, stream, and work with streams. We did theatrical shows outside this building where we had larger systems and then streamed it uh, from places where you wouldn't normally stream it from. And that allowed us to get our feet. Um, and this is in 2017, 2018. And then, as we as we came as we moved along, the pandemic hit, and that completely changed the landscape. Obviously, uh, that gave us a opportunity um, uh, to actually invest in digital and invest in time in what this digital could be. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, couldn't do anything physically in, in in place. And there were some really interesting shows as a as a small venue that allowed us to to really experiment in reaching a much wider audience. I remember um, still with our PDC set optics cameras in uh, um, at the September 2019, I think it was. Um, I know September 2020, because obviously that's when the pandemic was. Um, it's all one one melded uh, timeline now. Um, we did a, a show called No Touching Theatre, which was meant to be done to an, a physical audience um, and an online audience. But um, the the physical audience, the, the dates of when a theatre could actually open, moved in in, in Belfast, and we it was meant to be opening in, in September. That's when the show was. They moved dates back when we could actually open into October, November time. Uh, so this, the, the the show converted into an entirely online show, um, and. The, this show showed us some of the really exciting potential of digital events and digital first events where we were immediately streaming to an audience um, around about three times larger than what we could have even fit into the actual building itself. So it went out to over 600 people uh, across three nights. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 it was a, a real kind of success story in, in, in that kind of way with the artists were from across the entire island of Ireland were involved. A really fun group of, uh, were involved in kind of setting it up. We were just the venue for it. Uh, we weren't kind of designing it ourselves, um, but the, the reach of it was was incredibly exciting for such a small, kind of really grassroots uh, event to reach that many people uh, on you know, with no marketing budget, um, just the word of mouth. Uh, it was you know really showed the potential of what a digital kind of solution could be for us, and that allowed us to kind of really start to make the case and to invest in it, um, so that we're getting to the point now where we have. Um, 
most of our in-person events are also streamed events. Um, there's obviously, it's never going to be 100% because not all shows suit uh, a stream or suit a, a digital solution and not all um, um, not all artists will want to be streamed. There's usually a, a slight disconnect there, uh, especially until the models are more and more proven. Uh, and we did a, a study over the pandemic about what were different ways of monetizing um, different uh, um, types of, for, for, for solo artists and, uh, and, and others, monetizing uh, streaming so that it can be a really good support system. And some of that we've put in place already. Richard, so most you've of gotten shows, about six questions that you fired in my mind. I just want to ask a couple of them. One of them, I don't want yeah. you to move too far past the performer expansion versus digital expansion it seemed like you were saying that the performers in the theater had to kind of adapt to to be able to participate in this what what have you seen from the artists who come into the theater about their adaptability into this new form uh, it can vary. Um, there's those who are really put off um, by the the idea of streaming um, at all, uh, and there are those who really uh, embrace it. And it, you know that that's just the the nature of um, the the the, uh, the the nature of the form as it as it starts to evolve um, during the pandemic. It, there was a whole kind of thing about whether online theatre will replace actual theatre. And it's not designed as a replacement to actual theatre or actual live performance. It's designed as an adjunct to it or a new platform on which to, 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 to explore. Uh, and that's the area that we're currently trying to, to explore is what new options does it give us um, beyond just uh, in-person broadcasting, you know, hybrid standard events. Uh, Did you see artists who were energized first? by this as opposed to fearful? Or, or what was the breakout? What, what kind of... Um, I don't know if I could give you a percentage. Most uh, most people, especially when it's um, their own um, IP, um, are fearful of it just getting out there for free. Um, but uh, well, not for free technically because it's, it's it's all monetized. Um, but getting out there and then possibly people being able to screen script it and so forth. That's not really that uh, legitimately an actual concern that we've seen because it's very unlikely that someone's going to screen script your first comedy gig um, and, and try and sell it on the internet as a, as a bootleg. Um, it, it's a really unusual thing, but you know that's that. But you can then monetize it through that. So we've got different stand-up comedians who have done their first shows, and some of them want it at least recorded. And then that's where the digital system comes in um, uh, as well. Even if we don't stream it, we can record every event, and we try to make the case a, a lot of the time. Uh, and often we don't actually even have to make it the case now. After a year of this being part of our, our main business model, more and more people will come to us just because we can do all these digital things. Um, we have the building entirely designed with Dante, which means an artist who comes and um, uh, uh, performs on the stage can then leave with a recording of their event and the stems of every single instrument that they bring onto our stage and immediately go out and have you know, the beginnings of, uh, of, a, of a new album, uh, a live, uh, live lounge style. Um, so there's a huge opportunity in just having these little things that we've put into place uh, over, over, over the couple of years uh, um, that, 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 have, uh, that make artists more and more interested in the potential of what, what we're kind of uh, making available for them. My, my knee-jerk thing is, does that mean that there's an age divide, that the younger artists are more embracing of this? Or do you find some of the older performers able to get excited about this as well? Um, I don't know if there's an age divide because younger performers, there's a lot of, you know, there's an embracing of 
the of new forms anyway, um, usually. And there's also an embracing of doing um, stuff from home uh, that was already there pre-pandemic. And you know, obviously, we, we live in a world with Twitch and YouTube. Uh, streaming is a huge business, a uh, huge career path now that it didn't used to be. And, and uh, artists are very much involved in, in lots of those things, from streaming their rehearsals and streaming their, their work uh, to, to streaming just even the development processes of things. So the... Um, there's not necessarily a disconnect between age groups, but there's just a disconnect between forms. So you'll find um, comedy, especially um, people will, because it's a stand-up routine. They um, they might only have one or two really polished stand-up routines, and that's very difficult then for them to say broadcast out that to a much wider audience and then lose the ability to tour, as much as. For a lot of us, that's the benefit of not having to tour, not having to go to every single comedy club in the country to develop material. Um, and then there's also works in progress that we still do, um, scratch programs and things like that, that would generally not be streamed. Or um, there's an open mic night that we have called Cosmic Jam, where we're kind of in two minds about whether it's streamed and whether it's not, because it's not really a polished event. It's more of a chill uh, event, and that doesn't necessarily need to be streamed. But we do tend to record it, again, because the system has been put in place. We can stream you can record with a, a couple a couple of switches and well it's quite a lot of switches yeah I'm, I'm interrupting too much i have one more thing about stage lighting versus video lighting and how that affects the audience in their real space but if you want to skip that and get back to your presentation i just uh, there are some so many fascinating areas about what you're doing um where do you want to go next yeah, I would just, uh, I, I want to give people just a, a brief overview of what we have or what we've put in place. Um, so Excellent. we first of all moved into having uh, three PTZ uh, cameras from Panasonic. We've also got three Ursus. So at the moment in the room around me, um, there are um, these kind of uh, three PTZs and then there is one Ursa that I'm directly presenting into. And each of those cameras can be controlled from multiple different locations. Uh, they can be controlled. I'm just using an iPad and I can actually uh, hit a button and immediately zoom out into the entire theatre. For most of our shows, uh, given the, the Belfast method, um, I don't know why I'm talking at this camera whenever I know, I, I literally know I'm on this camera because I'm switching myself, um, but I'll, I'll move back to it anyway. Um, the uh, the, the most of our shows now have people from the office arts community who actually come in and control the cameras. Um, I wanted to have maybe Brian or, or Kirsten kind of controlling stuff today, but um, just because we had a, a little audio issue before the show, I kind of didn't have time to, to troubleshoot it. So um, each of these cameras is all controllable remotely from anywhere in the world. Um, the switching system is controllable anywhere in the world. I'm controlling it from an iPad sitting on the stage. So you can take this entire production method down into just a couple of, you know, uh, just a, just controllable by one person on the stage. Um, so it, there's a huge versatility in what we're trying to design and what we're trying to make available. And then that's allowed us to also make training courses based upon how all these different things fit together, how these different kind of options kind of go around the place. Um, downstairs, we have our control room. Um, so this is our kind of, kind of current control room at the moment. Um, it's set up with a um, uh, four kind of screens that give kind of pro program and preview um, as standard kind of also then the, there's the different operations of the actual um, uh, the, the ATEMS uh, control panel and the, the advanced panel that it is. Um, the, uh, then we've got kind of IMAX for different type of playback and different types of um, 
uh, different types of control as well, uh, and I'm also also able to walk into the shop, as you probably heard the transition. Um, so we have here the advanced panel, and then we've got our control for the, the cameras, uh, for the PTZs, and then we've got different kind of computers for actual um, playback and for ATEM software control and kind of other things as well. Uh, and then we've made this um, into a, uh, made a couple of places, and this is all underneath the theater. Um, so this is all uh, in a basement that used to be a bank vault. Um, so as you can, as I, as I said, the, this is all a, a previously a bank, and this is a, an old bank vault, and this is our server, and this is what is actually running the show itself. Um, this is uh, all the different things uh, that you need from the ATEM um, production to uh, 4K and the multi-views and the video hub and routing deck links and max minis and all these de different kind of things are all uh, situated in here. Uh, and uh, we, we, I remember Alex saying uh, a long time ago that he... Um, you get, you get your first rack and it sits on your desk and then eventually the rack gets bigger and you eventually move it somewhere else and that's where we've currently moved our, our system as well. And this is our kind of audio room as well where we've got um, uh, different kind of audio desks and uh, a large monitor for, for editing as well uh, and a couple of other things. So, Richard, it's yeah. very impressive. How many people does it take to run this for an average show? Um, it can be run on as little as one person um, because of the different kind of automation and tools that we've, we've put in place. But um, ideally, you want a person on each camera. Um, still, we don't use any AI tracking, um, like uh, computer vision or anything like that. So it's all kind of designed to be um, uh, expandable as you need. So it's always fantastic to have an audio engineer. And even today, I have Marty, who's on the desk above us, just, just in case there's a problem with wireless or anything like that. Um, and then we have, you, know, you want to have a person on each camera, a person calling, a person switching. So five people is normally the ideal. Um, um, but you can get as many as uh, you can get it as down to just one person. Uh, recently, Brian, um, who's one of the fantastic uh, volunteers on lots of the shows, Brian Shand, um, was controlling three cameras from Australia um, plus switching um, all from different kind of interfaces on on his iPads and uh, and so forth. I definitely want to get into the iPad later, but we have so many questions uh, backing up here that we better get to at least a couple of. Mitch, dive in. Guy Gleason from Seattle, Washington wants to know, just because you can doesn't mean you should do a show by yourself. In a smaller venue, what is your preferred minimum for crew in which departments? Oops, I think I jumped the gun on that. So I think he, he discussed a little of that. Uh, he's walking between venues right now, and we still haven't switched over to the new one. So uh, let's see if Richard comes back into the frame. Oh, I see a, a switch happening there. I think he's getting replumbed in. Yep, there he is. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, you just covered, I think, the minimum and maximum crew. Uh, ha has there been a difficulty in finding people who either understand this stuff in advance or how has been your experience training people up into this new world of remote production? Um, I've mostly, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've done, we've done where I've learned it from office hours or from other kind of systems and places done self-learning. I've had fantastic help from the likes of Mickey, JJ and others who've helped kind of design things as well as lots and lots of people in the, in the office hours community. And so I'm a bit out of breath because I try to run up the stairs quicker to get to the question. Uh, <laughs> Heading for the stairs, I should have known. Uh, let's just move on and let Mitch read the next question. You can settle in. Next no question. No problem. Catch your breath there. Uh, Jesse Mills from the San Francisco Bay Area 
asking, I love designing systems and operating tech for hybrids and can easily see the value of the cross-pollination that is unique with hybrid events. Has the accidental theaters seen their local and remote participants connect in meaningful ways? Ooh, good question. What say you, Richard? That's an interesting option or question. Um, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can answer it completely because um, the remote team are very separated. They get to talk to the front of house team. They get to talk to our engineers like Marty and, and Emma, who are in BS. I think they've become very close. Um, but time. Yeah, and time together is what really actually builds meaningful connection. And when you're just doing a show for one to two hours and then go away, um, you can build a false sense of family and then that kind of doesn't necessarily get very deep. So it probably depends upon, because the arts do this, the arts kind of builds little small nuclei families uh, really, really quickly because of over the course of three, four weeks of rehearsals. Um, but in the productions that we've done, I, I wouldn't say there's not meaningful connection, but I also wouldn't say that there is. Um, I can say from my personal experience that there is. There's people, uh, JJ, Mickey, um, the people here on the panel, there's lots of people I really feel an actual meaningful connection with remotely that I've never actually met. Um, you know, I work with them on a nearly daily basis in the Office Hours 2.0 system, uh, and we got, you get very, very close. Um, but... And you want, you want that connection to build. Um, but I don't know if I could speak for the other crew members. Well, I've had the same experience you have. It's an interesting dynamic. And I found it first on film sets where, you know, everybody comes together that they're nomadic by nature. This production happens and then the production people go a different way. And maybe then the next production you work with the same people. This is, I think it lives somewhere in the middle between uh, an in-person local group where you can hang out and do things together in the physical world and this virtual thing. But boy, this office hours community has become far more tight knit than I would have ever imagined. And I think it's, I think a lot of us find it emotionally satisfying to have this many global friends. And even if we don't see them all the time, just kind of know who they are. And, and it, I don't know, it feels like it's a new space. Uh, next question. Let's go on. Next question from Josh Kaufman at Pittsburgh PA. Josh asks, what physical and technical methods do you employ to engage with the on-site and online audiences? Is there provision made so that the on-site audience is made aware of the online audience and vice versa? Another good question. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting thing because, for one, you have to make an on, in-person audience aware that they're being filmed. So there's an immediate connection there. And there's also immediate kind of, oh, I'm being filmed. Uh, that's a, that's a little bit worrying. Um, for actual back and forth, um, uh, the the main things that we do for for certain shows because there's there's multiple different styles of shows. There's hybrid shows where there's no connection between online and, and on-site audience, um, but there's then other kind of shows where um, the say the improv shows where a comedy you know, the, the, the the MC or the comedy shows would call out the online audience or make uh, the online audience make suggestions and then you'll see them in big screens and you'll see them kind of being brought into the performance. Usually, my favourite thing is when the online world and the in-person world combine um, where you get a suggestion or something comment or question from an online audience and it is followed up or it, it delved into by the in-person audience or added on to um, by the, the, the in-person audience and the, 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 those on stage. So there's, there's this interesting kind of world where we're starting to see what 
remote audiences, how can they affect in-person performances? And this isn't about hybrid in-person audiences. This is just about how does an online audience affect an in-person show? How can they make a meaningful contribution to narratives and how the narrative evolves across the show? And that's an interesting world that we're still currently experimenting with. That resonates 100% with me and takes us right to our next question, Mitch. From Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisto, New Mexico. Richard, thank you for all you've done for my own understanding of the constraints of theater and, well, time and space. What's the biggest thing you've learned about theater from this project? Uh, it's an interesting one. Um, I probably have to think about time and space and, and what I've learned about theater itself. Um, I'm so busy learning the tech that I don't know if I've evolved my actual theatrical knowledge. Um, my actual job uh, when I came into this as a theatre director, um, I, don't, I haven't got to direct theatre in, in a number of years, pandemic uh, being the main cause, and then after that, trying to stay afloat. Um, so I haven't got to evolve my theatrical knowledge as much as I, I, I would have wished. Um, but the what we were doing pre-pandemic um, was very multimedia based uh, in, in terms of theatrical and this is outside of the building this is pre when Accidental was a building and now when Accidental was an actual theatre company touring productions and the digital always gave us an extra option or extra um, narrative path for um, other perspectives that are not usually reflected on stage. Uh, what we did, we did a show in 2014 called The Kitchen, The Bedroom and The Grave, um, which was a very typical uh, Northern Irish uh, or Irish and, and UK based kitchen sink style drama. Um, but with a huge extra edge to it where the, the, the main protagonist got to see the world through the lens of, uh, of interviewing other people and th uh, the, main, uh, the main characters got to learn about his own father through interviews uh, with other people. And we got to be able to put all these different things, the interviews uh, with other people, the interviews with other cast members and the interviews with, uh, this is all in a fictional world, uh, and then uh, on the stage so that the audience could actually get more than just what was being presented by the onstage actors. And tech usually gives that extra perspective. It gives an extra narrative arc that you rarely get um, from most traditional theatres. You get when theatre is a medium that tends to be made from the basis of what is combined on stage: the lighting, the sound, the performance, and now you know the AV kind of side of things. And when those three things combine, then you have a theatrical production. One of those things on their own doesn't make a theatrical production. Usually it's the combination uh, that, that, that really lifts something into the world of, of, of theatre. Uh, and the AV is always, for me, given the opportunity for a much wider, broad spectrum of perspectives to be brought on stage. That's fascinating. And, and you know, it, it harkens back. I've seen plays that are magic on stage, and I've seen their adaptions into... Um, recordings and they don't they seem flatter they don't seem as three-dimensional and I'm, I'm wondering if I, I mentioned lighting before stage lighting and video lighting are kind of two different things and one you're trying to get enough level so that you can get color reproduction and the rest of that in the real world sitting in a completely darkened theater a lighting director has an amazing amount of craft control over nuance shadow uh, how a face appears whether it's in the gloom that same thing reduced to a video presentation presentation is full of noise and just doesn't work. So I'm wondering how the how all of these things are now adapting and whether you are seeing uh, and maybe you're not seeing the approach change when when you're trying to do something for both sending out across the web and also satisfying the needs of that local 
audience in the seats. What say you? Oops, I think you're muted. Yeah, sorry, my, my iPad that controls my mute didn't uh, didn't click, uh, so I had to ask uh, Marty, uh, my uh, uh, amazing colleague who's in the booth, to, to unmute me manually. Um, the it's an interesting kind of uh, world. Theatre tends to adapt to tech much quicker than most other industries. Um, it tends to bring the, because we're there, as artists, you tend to look for other ways of communicating um, and to, to reach for new ways of communicating much more readily than, than other forms where you're, you're more worried about the, the negative effects or the, you know, the possible collapse of the tech. Um, artists tend to be going, yeah, if it collapses, that's fine. No, we, we want more. We want more. We want to try more things. Um, and it means that um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw people, you know, tech uh, being adopted into theatre much, much quicker than virtually any other industry that, that I could see. Um, you know, we also had the, the, the work from home kind of movement and, uh, you know, the, the, you know, it gives me Zoom fatigue. Oh, that's annoying. But <laughs> with theatre, like everyone was just you know, jumping for, for cameras and jumping for, for green screens in there behind themselves so they could do it. They may not have all been you know, really excited by it, but they were all kind of, you know, the, the, the amount of performers I saw grab a green screen uh, and start to kind of look at what actually their tech uh, was at home uh, really increased. So it meant that when they came back to the theatre, it gave us more options for, for people to be more um, sold on the idea of broadcast, more sold on the idea of, uh, of streaming and more sold on the idea of tech being introduced to their show. Um, we are a small venue, so it means that there's only so much tech we can kind of fit onto an, our actual stage. As our stage is, you know, it's not huge. You know, it's a small kind of 2.5 by, by 4 metre kind of space. Um, so therefore, we're not going to have massive projection screens. We're not going to have massive LED walls. Um, but what we do kind of bring in is, is, is kind of other areas where where um, uh, the the tech is kind of more seamless and under uh, 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 usually unseen. Um, lighting is a kind of interesting thing because as I was kind of running down the gear list, the two things that are lighting me at the moment are two film uh, lights rather than theatrical lights. Um, because what we've done is tried to make sure that we have a larger gamut of of, of ways of lighting the subject on stage, um, so that we could uh, we don't have movers and things like that just because they're they're too expensive for us. Um, but we, we kind of brought in these kind of things so that we could record more easily and also give a give a better uh, get a, get a, get a better kind of quality out of the cameras that, that we were putting on stage. All right, let's go to a couple more questions here from the audience. Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington, part of the audience, asking: As a business owner, do you design a space with client and crew in mind, such as catering, parking, and WCs? Richard. Yeah, the. We always, I mean, because we set up this space, it gave us a lot of freedom of how to design it. Um, so everything from the bathrooms to, to the, the floors above me uh, have all been designed with, with you know, both the... the restrictions of the space themselves as well as then the, the the possibility of what those kind of spaces can give for the audience as well as the performers so i mean there's there's a couple of spaces at the very top of the building that i haven't kind of cut to i'm not going to go upstairs this is our book bar um which we put our these are our two ptz optics cameras which are still up there uh in, in our book bar um that allowed us i'm not going to try running up there bill so don't worry um okay. the <laughs> uh but this allowed oh, us darn. to. oh darn i, I kind of want you to but no <laughs> stay in your chair <laughs> no we t- 
we tested it and my, my in-ear to hear you back won't reach that far. So uh, the, the, my, you will hear me, but I won't hear you. Um, so I've te- I think I've tested the, the realms of wireless as far as I'm willing to go today. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, so we we try to design all these spaces with people in mind. So you know, the we have th- certain physical restrictions. You know, our bathroom only uh, when we first came in here, there's a there was a male toilet on one floor and a female toilet on the the, the other floor, and there was no lift um, for accessibility. So all these things that we've changed over times. So we went to gender neutral toilets. We went to from toilets with urinals to toilets with stalls. Uh, we went we put in a lift for accessibility. You know, all these kind of things are designed around making the space more conducive for people to come and enjoy uh, and to access the arts and access uh, our work. And then the, the digital aspect is a, is, a, is, a, is a main aspect for that. One of the reasons why we do why hybrid is in the title of this um, specific show is that the arts is one of the largest areas for hybrid performances, for hybrid uh, broadcasts, because you often find with artists that they, they need an audience or at least they want an audience. Might be a crutch, might be a, an actual need but they want to have the audience in the room to feedback from. Uh, and we want to be able to provide audiences who may not physically be able to get to our building the ability to actually get here. They don't have to have a babysitter. They don't have to hire a car. They don't have to you know, get a taxi. They don't have to, if they have mobility issues or other issues, we're able to make the arts come to them. Um, and in all the great kind of you know, uh, traditions of art, arts coming to the audience, that this is one of those big areas with, with the, the ability to, to now stream on a more regular basis that, uh, that makes that possible. I think Courtney has a question for you too. Yeah, I was wondering, when you showed us the mix desk, which was down in the vault, uh, do you have any problem? And I assume that's mixing just the outgoing stream that you have a front of house mixer that's in the room itself. Uh, do you have any problems with that? And the other question is, uh, does the mixer have a problem? Do they, do they mix over headphones or open speakers? Because there's a big rack full of noisy fans I noticed in that room. And <laughs> a problem for the mixer uh, that's working, trying to mix, mix out of that the vault room. Yeah, mostly what, when we mix an actual show, it's mixed um, from the theatre itself. Um, again, being a small small venue, there's there's usually um, there's rarely someone dedicated just to the stream mix. There's usually uh, the person uh, Marty in, in in most of our cases uh, is mixing the stage mix and then secondarily the the stream mix or you know they're they're they're, they're involved in it and they'll mix from the theatre itself. We have an X32 in the theatre and an X32 in the basement. Uh, we also then have a um, and Alan Heath, which is the analog one, which is downstairs. So that little area is mostly used for post-production rather than necessary live mixing in the show environment. Uh, a lot of that's done over headphones or done over um, uh, and then checked through uh, speakers and through computers. We, we do a lot of monitoring. So you know, often uh, if I'm remote from a, from a production, I'll still dial in and I'll listen to the show on the stream and you know, be able to feed back to the crew if there's a problem. Uh, we, we, we try and check at each stage of the the. the transmission chain for for different kind of checks so they don't often mix from that little studio with the fan noise and they're normally mixing from a couple different places we have a lot of questions coming in let's get to the next one douglas carmichael asking how have you leveraged dante with any audio systems in both spaces dante is um the secret sauce, I think, to, to most things now. Um, it's probably one of the most transform- transformational tools that we've learned and, and deployed uh, in, in the building. Um, it allows us to move. So last week, 
Um, I'm going to look at Marty uh, for handmade music, um, uh, a new series that we've started where it's, a, it's entirely designed around experimental music um, in conjunction with uh, Moving On Music in Belfast and Sonic Arts Research Centre at Queen's here. Um, we had to give them plugs. You can't mention the name of the show without giving them plugs. Um, the... Uh, they, the entire show is moved around the building through Dante. So there was, there's, there, we, in the book bars I just showed, there was a um, more kind of a cappella, more kind of uh, acoustic group, but still being captured and put into an X32, Dante down into the main, uh, main X32 running the show and then down into the stream. Um, for, for improv shows, um, uh, we do uh, shows where uh, often uh, performers will not like to be mic'd. So as I'm now mic'd, they will not like that. Um, just some performers will not like like it and often we don't have the um uh, the ability to have a, an engineer available to actually mic six different performers and so forth as much as we have the gear um there's usually pushback from 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 early career kind of artists about wearing mic packs and also just engineering wise it's 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 it's, it's a job in, in and of itself so we have room mics um that then get processed via dante down into logic get removed lots of room noise gets processed uh, out of out of logic move via dante back uh uh, into the, the X32, which then moves it again back down into the stream mix. So Dante allows us to do all of this. Without without Dante, it would be absolutely impossible to do uh, a lot of what we do. Um, and uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it allows us to provide a service for artists that they can come and then, you know, performance artists who come to our open mic night, as I mentioned, Cosmic Jam, um, uh, allows them to perform just on a, at an open mic night and leave the stems of their show, of their performance. I mean, that to me is unheard of. The, the idea that they could actually go away. And this is just something we do for people. This isn't even something that's necessary, that, that's a paid service. Service is just what we want to put in place to help people begin their career. That's the entire part of what, what why we're here and what we're doing. Nice. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, how big of a space do you need and what would it cost to start up an operation like yours from scratch in U.S. dollars? <laughs> I'm not going to convert them to U.S. dollars, Paul. Um, no, I'm not going to try that. Um, the... Uh, it's not a, it's not a cheap process. Um, what we were lucky with in the UK is that there's a scheme called rate relief um, that the government put in place, and they might actually be eliminating soon, um, where charities can occupy buildings, especially vacant buildings, and then give the landlord rate relief on what they're paying on their vacant property. This allowed us to do a lot in our early stages. It allowed us to take over, I think, four or five different spaces, uh, excluding uh, accidental, uh, as it is now, and. and and, and turn them into rehearsal spaces, turn them into uh, performance spaces. Um, and then it allowed us to, to come into this building and spend the first six months, six to nine months here, without having to pay rent, without having to pay uh, costs, and to see whether we could build up, whether the model, the financial model we were putting in place for this space would work. Um, so it was basically a large um, gamble uh, on my part, mostly um, to see whether this space would work when we first set it up. Um, but we didn't have to put any money down because we were actually alleviating the money from the, from the, the landlord at that stage. Um, it then came to the point where if we wanted to stay, we would obviously have to start to pay rent. And then that's, we had the first six to nine months of the business model to prove that we could afford that. So um, in terms of setup, uh, depending upon what location you have and what finances, you, you, what, what, what cost that has, 
that could be anywhere to you know from from twenty thousand to fifty thousand pounds. Sorry, Paul, uh, pounds a year uh, for the actual space alone, and that's kind of a base price. And then for the equipment and staffing, you're probably talking about another hundred thousand in staffing, and then another hundred thousand initial equipment purchases. Um, that's um, probably mixed in a couple of different places you can you know nip and tuck in different places but that's usually what you're facing next question ronnie hafsoy in uh, tromso norway asking have you targeted specific types of guests or types of events and what is the experience on age demographics will to pay physical and digital balance in numbers and or revenue um it's interesting there's what we've seen since we so kind of we can split timelines into 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 years. So if we come out of the pandemic um, uh, in 2020-2022, was the first year we had a full artistic program and a full um, digital offering going alongside that program. It wasn't digital only; it was digital broadcast off the in-person events. Um, this year is the first year where we'll start to develop its own bespoke, you know, a separate digital program uh, coming out of uh, the membership scheme that we have to, to support the building. Um, but last year, we probably saw around about 10 to 15% of the sales um, overall, and it massively fluctuates between shows, being online. Um, so already um, in one year, we have around about 10% at lowest um, uh, of, uh, of online sales supporting the the work and that's an extra you you have to think of it that's an extra 10 percent of sales that weren't there before um so again for a small venue that's a huge additional uh income you know uh, you, you've also got all the effort of learning it and installing it in the equipment but that's a huge kind of a, a, a increase to us uh, on our on our bottom line um the aim is then obviously for that to grow to not just parity, but then for the digital to slowly exceed um, the, the physical sales. And we've seen that as I, I gave the example of No Touching the Festival. Um, the digital should slowly uh, outstrip, but it is slow because we are a tiny venue in a small country of only about 2 million people. Um, and building up an international audience or a national level audience is a really difficult task. You know, I've talked to different people, including uh, Nigel on the panel, but how do you make that, that movement? How do you start to build that audience uh, internationally? Uh, and that's, you know, it, if we can crack that little nut it means that artists who come here will be able to start their careers with already a small international following the you know the the, the old adage about you know you only need a thousand people in your tribe is very very true um and that doesn't matter whether they're local to you or around the world so that's where um the digital option for us has become a huge thing uh, allowing uh, allowing us to both provide it as a service to artists but also as a as an underpinning for our, our own bottom line it's it's got this huge growth potential in front of us next question Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois, asking, do you have a five-year or 10-year plan, dream plans? So as I, as I mentioned, um, we expect online sales to, to grow and, and slowly eclipse. Um, that's seen as a, as a five-year plan. Um, the 10-year the plan, we we can't I, I i tend to not make plans too far ahead uh to to because i come from an industry in a background where things will change on a dime um and or a penny uk specific um so it, it's a it, things change so quickly it's hard to put concrete plans in um but for me last year was our first year of kind of getting 
uh, getting up and back after the pandemic. We survived that year. It was very, very difficult. We're now kind of going through the living crisis in the UK, which I'm assuming is, is also other places. The cost of living crisis here is very, very difficult. Uh, it's meant a real reduction in, uh, in, in audiences uh, and also an increase in costs for, for most events. Um, but that's going, you know, we're getting through that. So 2023 becomes a year where we can now start to put in a, a larger programme for both um, in-person audiences, online audiences, and also online only, and also our membership. So the idea of starting to programme specifically for those who have said, signed up for a subscription has become a huge part of uh, what, 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 what we're looking at this year. Uh, and that kind of, you know, things like that membership, things like, uh, you know, digital kind of uh, offering have become a, you know, a huge part of that kind of five-year plan of how do we start to grow beyond just being this little building. Next question. Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Guy says, do you see computer vision changing the way you do things in the future? And for those of you who were not watching yesterday, and shame on you for not watching, it was a fascinating uh, presentation by the folks from PTZ Optics about computer vision and how that functions. Among many things, it tracks people and, and moves cameras based on that, but that's not the only thing it does. So with that context, Richard? Um, it's really interesting. For talks, I can see it being really very, very helpful. Um, but for performance, it hasn't got a chance. Um, a, I mean, I, I would ha I'm going to definitely check the technology, but looking at the Panasonic tracking um, and looking at kind of a couple of the other kind of automatic tracking options, um, a, the, uh, and obviously the, the other aspects of computer vision that I haven't delved into yet. You know, are, are also there but in terms of the tracking nature um, those who have already been part of some of the shows that we've done uh, responding to a, uh, the movement of, uh, uh, of, a, of an improver or to a performer on stage is an incredibly difficult thing um, and you know people who will uh, on a whim again improv is a really good example of this um, because you've got a performance where on a whim they will sit down on a whim they will jump into the audience on a whim they will move to anywhere in this stage or the theatre um, because they're responding to the, the artistic input from the audience that kind of tracking is very 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 challenging and you know even for a human being that's challenging so it's definitely on my mind to look at as, as we've looked at the kind of other kind of uh, tracking systems but I, you know I'm really the Remote collaboration with uh, with likes of, of Brian and Kirsten and JJ and lots of other people who've joined us on on the system gives us more options for actually connecting with people and connecting with volunteers from around the world than it, than a computer system would allow us to do. So it's interesting, but I'm really happy with what we're currently doing. Next question: Talalok Lopez Waterman from Galesto, New Mexico, asking: Has it been easier or harder to get funding with this new model? It's interesting. The I don't want to give away my funding secrets, especially if there's funders here um, or watching at some point. You never know. Um, but funding is a is a is a tricky art form in itself to look at and get. So having this as an option has allowed us to apply to a wider group of places. Um, so you know, there's UK Innovate grants that are currently due next week, which I'm going to have to go home and do today. Um, um, and there's there's lots of other kind of grant systems that are designed around technology and uh, and uh, um, digital kind of solutions that aren't normally available to theatres or to artists. And having the system in place and having the experience that we've had uh, of putting it into place has allowed us to apply to a much wider range of, of possible grant funders. Um, so 
it, it's allowed a huge amount of, of growth in that option. And even the actual initial camera, camera purchases were because there were some grants available uh, during the pandemic to help with that. A lot of it was our own finance and a lot of it was from the, the finance as a, as a, as a, as a slight gamble. Um, but there's also, uh, there were a couple of grants available that allowed us to kind of fund the PTZ cameras and things like that. Next question. Roddy Hofsey from Tromso, Norway asks, do you welcome guest techs to visit your venue and control room behind the scenes, either physical or digital, with or without intercom? Um, yes, I mean, back when we started doing the, the Belfast Method um, shows um, that I'm hoping we can bring back in the next kind of year as a more wider program, we, we do do kind of Belfast Method style shows every single week with volunteers joining us to control cameras, as I mentioned, um, but we don't surface that in the way that we used to do. Um, but we're more than open for it. Um, there is a part of me that wants to monetize it um, to help support. You know, we are a charity. We, we don't have a huge amount of resources. So for us to advise and to help other buildings, I, I hope that we can monetize that a little bit. Um, we've put in place training programs that have been funded by different government bodies here in the, in the UK to allow us to actually have the freedom to talk to a much wider group of, uh, of, of, uh, of technicians as well. So it's absolutely um, no problem. Uh, we we would love, we want to surface more of these things. Um, but at the same time, there's part of my brain that always kind of goes, you need to get paid. Um, uh, otherwise, the lights will turn off. Um, so, yeah. Uh, give me a shout. I'm always, we're absolutely completely open. But at the same time, hey, if there's a grant that you can apply for to help us help you. There you go. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, you're using Makata. Will you at some point do Q&A and question management like on office hours? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we, we we're, we're very lucky that um, we were able to use Fersion Makana for lots of our shows. For um, uh, We do use it actually for Q&A style events. So when we, we've we got a festival coming up, um, part of the thing that I haven't mentioned in terms of, of this is what it's allowed us to do as a digital hub for the wider artistic community. Um, and that's when it, during the pandemic it allowed us to um, use Accidental as a basis for uh, one of the first festivals that got hit by the pandemic called Imagine Belfast. Um, it's, a, it's a festival of politics and ideas uh, and um, it basically had to cancel its entire program whereas therefore because we, we already had a number of things in place previous cameras our, our Canon C100 and things like that we could move over and help that entire festival go online within a week so we like we had about a week's notice and then we filmed half of their program here in the theatre and then broadcast it using Wirecast uh, over a course of three days as three days of eight hour programming I literally sat in my office trans streaming um, eight, eight, eight hours a day of pre-recorded content for that festival and getting flashbacks um, but it, that was the first instance and then we got to work with other vessels at the Cathedral Quarter Arts Festival the Art Purse, uh, Arts Festival the Art to Lunch Arts Festival the Four Corners Festival um, as well as the Belfast Arts Festival all these festivals we've taken online using the skills that we've learned from Office Hours and the skills that we've developed in this building um, and some of those are where we've gone down to uh, other venues in, in the city and we've taken a live view and we've streamed the cameras back here I've done kind of a talk on that before uh, before um, um, and other times where we've gone down and we've we've street, we've switched the the systems from from other venues and you know just had a live view solo taken out rather than the big live views. So this building 
becomes that digital hub by, by how many people and artists we can help. Uh, and that's one of the exciting things that the last couple of years have given us. So the question was about Meccana, uh, and I'm going to get back to that, uh, which is that there's a festival coming up where we'll have Noam Chomsky coming in as, as one of the, the talks, and we'll probably use Meccana uh, as part of the, the onboarding process for that. Um, it, it's such a versatile tool, and we're very, very lucky the office ours has allowed us to use it. I wonder if something like uh, a Q&A with the actors on a Sunday matinee or something like that would become something that the audience might be interested in to do their play normally through its run, but then once a week allow people to... Yeah, we, we did an experiment with it because um, a lot of it depends upon how invested you are in the artist already. Um, so are, are you, Bill, going to show up to uh, a talk with a young, uh, in the first three years, and you may do this, I'm not saying you won't, um, talk with a young artist um, in Belfast that you, you, know, you may only see the advert for it once uh, in, in a passing stream or someone recommend it the likelihood of you dialing in is very, very low because you're not invested in that story yet. So a lot of what we do at this stage is try to get these things surfaced more and more so people can invest in the artist. There's a lot of part of our, our strategy for 2023 is, is doing a lot of this. So we do more streams now with artists from um, uh, from the building, from the studios under on, under me at the moment, um, where we, we stream talks. I, I, there's a couple of them about handmade music up on our Facebook and YouTube at the moment, where we're literally you know using systems like McCann and others for artist interviews uh, and uh, a lot of that with Meccana is designed where people have to come into it um, so for that system we actually used um, uh, one that uh, John Barker's developed for H2R um, H2R graphics where we can put it to any different um, uh, social media system and then script those those comments or questions into our system oh that's um, interesting so we, yeah. we've done it in a couple of different ways. We've also, we host a, a regular monthly um, Discord live show um, designed to connect with one of the film clubs that we have. And then they, they our Discord is connected to Meccana and the, the, the um, presenters see Meccana inside, but um, the audience won't. So there's lots of different ways to use these kind of tools that we've, we've, we've used to connect them. Yeah, so what you're saying essentially is community building, is it's beautiful for that, and community building comes first. The, the more community yeah. you have that you can reach out to and say, we're doing this on a particular day, the more likely it is to succeed rather than just doing it as a single one-off thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Next question. Larry Tang in Concord asked, I have a few comedians that want to do a hybrid show and monetize it to grow their attendance and revenue. What is the best streaming service to do this for attendees to buy individual tickets and be able to view it live? Um, it's actually one of the things that we're trying to develop for ourselves where we can actually offer that as a venue um, where we're, you know, during the pandemic, we kind of moved into this model of we're not a venue that's geographically locked. We're a venue that is anywhere in the world that wants to host a show. So if you have a show and you want to put it on to a hybrid audience or to an, an online audience only, we can help facilitate that box office and that back end system. If I was doing it myself, I would, you know, what we use and what people are for, for, you know, uh, tend to use, I think, is Fimeo a lot of the time for um, uh, the fact that it's easy to lock down versus the likes of YouTube. Um, there's also places like Darkast and, and other other kind of white label ones that I, we looked at and we've, we've certainly tried. Uh, Vimeo is where we settled on for, for a lot of our own kind of work where we can actually design the player to look a specific way. We can embed it on the website with a chat. We can embed it on the website without a chat. We can embed it into Meccana. So a lot of that kind of back end is, is, is done with Vimeo streaming and it's been, it's been pretty reliable. 
Um, it, it had an outage about two weeks ago, which is why I haven't said completely reliable. Nice. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, asking, what wireless systems are you running in the venue? Is there an RF coordinator? There's not an RF coordinator. We're too small for that. So that kind of falls on myself and, and, and our sound tech, my, my colleague Marty, uh, to do a lot of that and uh, advice from Mickey today because uh, we had a weird beep uh, that we couldn't, couldn't work out where it came from. Um, so we use um, a Sennheiser wireless system. Um, so and we're just on EW11s, or sorry, EW100s at the moment. Uh, and then we have two diversity fins um, that are receiving that, that signal as well. Um, last year, we had an event we were doing in a different part of the, the city for a festival and we had an absolute nightmare of wireless uh, interference that happened within five minutes to go to the show. It was all tested perfectly and then five minutes before the show, got, our wireless got killed. So at that stage then I got a lot of advice from people like Mickey and others what we should put in place and we're kind of only getting to the stage now of putting some of that into place which is larger diversity fins uh, for reception and uh, a splitter again from, from, from Sennheiser to kind of take that signal split out to uh, up to eight different kind of receivers um, so that, that's what we use at the moment. So I'm going to put you on the spot now. You had your tech hat on for most of this. I want you to put your artistic director hat back on and imagine that uh, you now have a chance to dream about what you're going to move this toward as we're going forward in a non-tech way. Or is there anything you're dreaming about in the back of your head and saying, this could evolve into something entirely different? What 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 is your creative mind looking forward to? Um, the main thing for, I mean, my artistic director hat is usually um, uh, unfortunately taken up with um, are we going to survive the next quarter financially um, uh, more more than anything else um, uh, these days um, so the, the the main thing I dream about is greater sustainability so this is why um, we have the greater freedom to, to create work and a lot of that comes with finding and building an audience uh, and then greater reach and greater ability to impact the audience uh, and a wider audience that's, that's what I dream about uh, finding ways of building and reaching uh, and connecting with people uh, and the, this system uh, and systems like it just like performance that's what kind of gets me going each day the tech stuff actually I really enjoy kind of solving but artistically speaking it's more about reaching people and kind of trying to connect with an audience uh, and that audience being anywhere in the world again I come from a incredibly small country um, that is it has a the entire country's population is smaller than most US cities um, it, it, it the I, and we're also cut off from the rest of our country um, by, by the RSC uh, and then we're connected to another country um, that is also our country but not really so there's all these different things that have made Northern Ireland feel very isolated over the last kind of 30 to 50 years um, and the tech side of things has allowed us to feel actually connected um, to a much wider global audience and uh, that's what really excites me is starting to feel like we're not cut off and artists starting here will no longer feel cut off off, um, from the rest of the world, that they'll feel connected to an artistic tradition, they'll feel connected to uh, a community much, much wider, and that's the things that really excites me. So, yeah, I don't know if that really answers the question. But it absolutely does, and it's beautifully put. Thank you so very much. Don't forget, tomorrow, how to make video for the classroom. Sunday is more... Uh, 
theoretical and we ask uh, entertain more question we're not streamed on video or on youtube so uh we get a little go a little brighter richard thank you so very much for being here today thank you everybody in the back end and i say that the the tech crew behind things all over the planet helping us do this every day on office hours we appreciate all of you we appreciate everybody who put questions in today we appreciate uh the panelists who have been here today and uh the audience and uh, the back end crew watch as we roll the credits here all these people make this possible see you all tomorrow same time same place bye enjoyable hour richard thank you so very much thanks pal thanks everyone my ipad still has battery that's amazing <laughs> That worked when you went upstairs. That worked exceptionally well. <laughs> I went downstairs. Um, went downstairs. I've yeah. got, uh, I don't know what, if you can see this, but because um, yeah. we're now in credits, um, but um, I've got my multi-view over NDI built into my web page that I'm controlling Look my cameras that. on. Look at that, that's awesome. And you um, get... So that's why my, my battery's uh, going down. <laughs> went down from 90% of the top of the show to 10. Cool beans. You're going to have to put a power pack in your pocket and put the... Lightning yeah. today. So we, we need think, black power so. cords, right? So they disappear without the white Apple ones. That's it. Anyway, <laughs> thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.